We are starting, though, with some more concerns being raised about our health care system. This time, a long list of specialists, including cardiologists, orthopedic surgeons, respirologists, pediatricians, they have all penned a letter to the health minister requesting a meeting. And joining us to talk a bit more about this and some of their concerns is orthopedic surgeon and president of the BC Orthopedic Association, Dr. Lane Dilwart. Dr. Dilwart, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me today. You and some other specialists have penned a letter to the health minister. It starts by saying we want to express our deep concern for the estimated 1 million patients waiting to see a specialist in BC. It asks for an urgent meeting with the health minister. Can you talk a little bit about what prompted this letter? Well, I had uh, done a recent campaign back in March uh, for uh, a meeting with the health minister based on the problems we were seeing in in orthopedics. And unfortunately, I haven't gotten very far uh, with that. And I was growing more and more frustrated. So it led me to reaching out to more people and more specialists around the province. And the more stories I heard, the more concerned I was for the healthcare state in British Columbia. And I realized that every specialty, every aspect, every avenue of healthcare right now is in a state of crisis and and we need to start working finding and implementing solutions the letter goes through some examples as well talking about uh, not only long surgical wait times but it talks about the times when people are waiting for specialist care and we don't tend to focus on that as much or talk about that as much but can you give us a couple of the examples where somebody is waiting for specialist care and it's it's too much of a wait or too long of a wait and there are negative outcomes well if you can imagine you see your family doctor and they say you need to see a specialist for this problem there's a question that's lingering out there for patients. So it it, it really wears on them them mentally. But if you actually think about what can happen to people while they're waiting on a wait list, the easiest example is with cancer. You get this cancer diagnosis, and now you're told it's going to take three or four months to get in for a biopsy. And that, that to any patient, will lead to a significant amount of uh, anxiety for them. Or what if you have a child who we're worried about an uh, autism diagnosis? The wait for that can be up to 18 months right now for a formal assessment. So now you have a three-year-old child, you think they might be autistic, and there's nothing you can do. There's no supports from the system to get you through that time frame. You're just waiting to be seen. You know, in the interior right now, we're having such a struggle uh, with, uh, with even simple x-rays that we have patients traveling hundreds of kilometers to an x-ray place that has a, a time frame to get it within a, a shorter time period. I mean, it. It's in every aspect of our care right now. Uh, and waiting is, is such a mental burden on patients. And the problem also is that the disease process, whatever it is, be it an arthritis waiting for surgery or a hearing loss condition or any of these things, in medicine, most things are progressive. And so problems, unfortunately, can get worse while the patient is waiting. And when you mentioned those examples, too, and just to go back to the cancer example, because I think there's a perception out there that say, and I know there are issues as well in that you have to have a family doctor, say, to get a reference or referral to get a mammogram. And there, there are issues about that as well. But in a scenario like that, it's, I think it's wild, widely thought that if somebody goes, has a mammogram, something shows that there is some, there is cancer, there is something that needs more exploration, or there is a cancer diagnosis, diagnosis that you, that you then go to an oncologist and it's a pretty seamless process. But is that not what we're actually seeing? 
and we're seeing we're seeing that pro- process uh, get a bit more broken uh, lately. So you know you need to see the oncologist. You also need to get a formal biopsy, which requires uh, our radiology colleagues and and all of these things. The, the backlog is 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 so much right now that even those things are being delayed. So you know you would hope that once you have that diagnosis or thought, they find a spot on your mam- mammogram that you can get in quickly to get a biopsy. So first you have to wait for that biopsy, and then you have to wait for the oncologist to see you after that biopsy. And then if there's a treatment, you then have to wait. If it's surgical, you have to wait to see a surgeon, then to go in for surgery uh, to get the cancer removed. Or you have to wait for a radiation oncologist who uh, will do the radiation. And so there's so many, with a cancer diagnosis, there's so many more waits that um, come after they find the spot, be it in the lung, in the breast, in in uh, in the prostate. Right. Okay. We we hear from the health minister quite often, though, about how BC has done a great job when it comes to clearing surgery backlogs, many that were caused because of the pandemic. Uh, we hear often about MRI wait times, that those have become far shorter than they've been in the past. So are we focusing on, on perhaps areas that are good and not paying attention to other areas that you and the other doctors, the other specialists have raised? Yeah, I think I think we do have to focus as well and, and, and congratulate where where there have been some successes. MRIs is one success. But at this stage, some we're able to get CT scans and sometimes MRI scans prior to uh, simple x-rays, which should usually be the first stage in the diagnostic uh, process. So there are, there are so many different places that we are struggling right now that even for myself being in a, a, you know, a frontline position, I didn't know what some of the problems were until I started listening to my colleagues who are dealing with these patients. And that's what we're begging the ministry to do is to have a conversation and hear from us what are the problems. How are we going to come out of this healthcare crisis for our patients? It's also, I would imagine, it might be come as a bit of a surprise because we've also been talking so much about family doctors and the issues with shortages and why so many med students and people don't want to go into being a family doctor because we know it's like running a small business and there's so much paperwork and it's so time consuming. But we often hear in that argument that the people that don't become family doctors instead become specialists, but we don't often hear about issues when it comes to specialists. Yeah, so it's, it is a, it's a great point, and I think our, our family doctor colleagues are definitely struggling, and I'm, I'm very happy to see that they've, they've gained the minister's ear. But many of the problems that the, that the uh, uh, primary care docs have, we, we have as well. So we run our own small businesses. The, the key of in, infrastructure uh, for specialist care in British Columbia is the specialist outpatient office. And so it's, it's, it is our offices, which are uh, uh, owned by, our, uh, by the physician themselves, run by the physician themselves, staffed by the physician themselves. So all those problems that you hear uh, with the family doctors do echo quite a bit within the specialists as well. Be it the paperwork, be it the, the, you know, the overhead to run an office um, and the challenges of running that business. You've requested an emergency meeting with the health minister. What else could be done? Obviously, it would be good to get that meeting. But what do you see then as potential solutions to these long waits and to these issues? Well, we have to find a way to recruit and retain more bodies. We need need more doctors. The, The population of British Columbia has exploded. 
and we're just we're just not keeping up and we may need supports for infrastructure and, and allied healthcare professionals. There's so many solutions I can think about on the top of my head that, that would mean nothing if we don't have collaborative support between the government, the governing bodies of, of uh, the doctors uh, in British Columbia, as well as individual sections to, to really have a sit down and be like, here's, here's the biggest crisis we have right now, which I don't know what that might be, what specialty it would be in. We need to find ways to make this better. Is it through innovation? Is it through changing the way that these practices are run? Is it through infrastructure? Because specialist care is so broad that one solution isn't going to fix all of the problems. So it's going to need, you know, I've talked about this before, but it's going to need a task force. It's going to need people from all different aspects, primary care, specialist care, surgeries, you know, um, uh, diagnostics, everybody at the table to say, how do we make this overall situation better for patients in British Columbia? And did it get worse because of the pandemic or how much of this is because of the pandemic or it was already an issue? It was definitely already an issue. We've been we've been dealing with problems in specialist care for a very long time. And I think as with a lot of things, the, the pandemic has really just brought it to the forth, forefront and it's taken us to this verge of, of, of collapse. I don't think we've ever been quite as close to collapse as we are today, but all of these problems are longstanding. All right. Well, Dr. Dilwart, we'll talk to you again about this, I'm sure, and see if there is a response from the health ministry. But thank you so much for your time today and for joining us. I really appreciate you having me. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, uh, some updates when it comes to travel news. And Canada is preparing to drop the COVID-19 vaccine mandate at the border. Several government sources telling Global News that could be done by the end of September. Also confirming that the use of the ArriveCan app, that's the app that provides vaccination information to border officials, that would become optional once these restrictions are lifted. So let's check in with Claire Newell as we do every Wednesday afternoon at this time. Claire, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. Yeah, this is really the buzz in the travel industry. And when I talk to people, they're all really interested in hearing if this is actually going to happen because news broke of it over the weekend that the the existing you know, regulations that are in place and requirements for foreign arrivals to be vaccinated, um, the mandatory random testing, that all of this could actually expire at the end of September and then not be renewed. Because right now there's this order in council that actually has everything in place, but that's the date that it expires. So normally we see them just renew it for another month. But I think these leaked reports, Jill, I really feel like they're the government testing the waters and just to see what their reaction is going to be. Um, So, This would ultimately mean, like you said, lifting of requirements for foreign arrivals to be vaccinated and and those mandatory random testing for arrivals. If it uh, it could, they're talking about include the mandatory use of using the ArriveCan app. And I know that there's been talk that from government officials saying, oh, it's not it doesn't really affect people. But I can tell you that it does. I I heard from people who were working at the Port of Vancouver, for example, who were saying that they had to hire additional staff because the people boarding were having difficulty. If they hadn't already done it, they had to have people who were techie enough to actually help people 
download the app, fill it out, and then get on board the ship. So, um, and I, I, I've heard that at uh, airports as well. I do know some older people, you know, 75 plus, who say, I don't want to have to go through all that. I can't do it. I don't use a cell phone. I just don't want to go. So this will make a difference for, for some people. The other thing that will be interesting is whether or not mandatory masking will remain in place or whether it will become optional as well. So I know that the airlines have been talking about this and many have been saying that it's really difficult to keep it enforceable now. People put it, you know, underneath their nose or take it off longer than while they're actually eating. And it's becoming tough because there are many jurisdictions around the world and many airlines that are, um, their, their flag is in other countries and they don't require it, whereas Canadian airlines must enforce it. So it's interesting what will happen. Uh, yeah, and that one too, you're right, because if you've, if you've flown it all lately, it's even the enforcement issue and, and the kind of nursing that one uh, beverage that you might have to not wear the mask. And even WestJet has come out saying, like, we, we can't enforce this. And other airlines too, as soon as you're out of Canadian airspace, the masks come off. So it's, it's, yeah. clearly, it's clearly not something that, that people are, are, are really buying into or, or really wanting to keep, it seems like anyway, when it comes to travel. Yeah, I I think there's a lot of people now just saying, please just let it all go like other jurisdictions around the world. Um, It's not everywhere that there aren't any restrictions, but there are a lot of countries. Um, And every day that I come into the office, I see another country that's, you know, making changes. Although although this week, I I sent a note to you about this. Did you see Spain actually extended their COVID entry requirements until November 15th? So it's really one of those reminders to to make sure you know where you're going and what needs to to come into play, Uh, where whether you're coming or going from a destination. And the best website that I found for that is that website we've talked about over the the years now, Sherpa, um, where you put it, that word Sherpa into Google and just put Sherpa travel and up will pop uh, what looks like a booking engine. And you can put in whether you're vaccinated or not and where you're going, even if you have a connection and it will tell you everything that you need to do, whether you need to wear a mask or not, be vaccinated or not, do a test or not, which I think is still so important in this day and age while it's a bit of a roller coaster some are you know taking them away and some are extending them yeah good to know uh, before you go absolutely uh, so we're waiting to hear more about that and to see uh, if all of these reports and what uh, actually gets signed off on and what yeah. changes are coming what else is happening in the travel industry well you may have heard of all the chaos at amsterdam's skipple airport and uh, a couple of weeks back we talked about the fact that you you could actually get compensation if you were stuck in the mix, if you got to the airport on time to Amsterdam, but then um, got, you know, it took forever to get through, whether it be customs or security, and there was compensation. Well, they have actually put in restrictions on the number of passengers. They had put it in place for September and October, and now they're actually tightening those. Originally in September, they were sitting at around that 67,500, and then October, 69,500. They're dropping that on average by about 18%, and it's due to a lack of availability of security guards. So not every airport around the world is, you know, hiring as fast as they need to be. And I get it. It's very tough to hire people 
um, to work in travel and tourism. It's just an ongoing problem that I hear. And it doesn't matter whether it's an airport or an airline, uh, travel agencies, tour companies, they are all finding it really, really tough um, because so many people left the industry. So this is tough. So we're hoping that this will you know, all end at the end of October and that they, we won't hear of any more restricted numbers of passengers happening at Schiphol Airport. But it's not great news that we're dealing with this. I actually thought it would kind of be over with mid-September, but that's not the case. All right, we'll have to keep watching and see what happens with that one. Uh, back in Canada, uh, some smaller airports, uh, some news around the, uh, surrounding smaller airports and CBSA. Yeah, so CBSA had actually stopped their border services, a lot of small airports, um, just because it was of co- because of COVID-19 and it's been tough. And all of the major airports, it starts with the big four. So we're lucky here at YVR. Um, uh, the other airports would be Toronto, Calgary, um, Montreal. But some of the other airports, even here in BC, there's 13 of them, but 55 very small airports are now going to be getting their border services back in play. And, sorry, there's 12 in B.C., not 13. And some of the ones that um, we're talking about would be, like, in Duncan or in Creston Airport. Courtney has a couple of airports. So um, Pitt Meadows has one. They they are very small. They don't have big numbers, but it it's going to be nice for those airports to get that CBSA service resumed there. And it's 55 small airports across Canada. Yeah, it's, it, it, we've spent so much time talking about the big airports and issues there. It's nice to get an update and include the smaller ones that are very important as well. Yeah, especially if you live in those communities. I think it's really, really going to be a game changer for all of these little areas. But it's it's 12 in B.C., two in Northwest Territories, four in Alberta, one in Manitoba, 27 in Ontario, two in Quebec, one in Manitoba, one in PEI, four in Nova Scotia, and one in Newfoundland. So we're talking about a lot of airports. <gasps> yeah, all right. Well, that's uh, some good news uh, as well. Uh, this is a story I'm so glad that we can talk a bit more about this, because when you first look at this, you think, mm, I don't want to be first on this flight, but it's uh, flying with these electric hybrid aircraft, aircraft, and Air Canada is going to be doing that. So I'm with you. I don't want to be like on the inaugural flights <laughs> of these, but there are going to be so many testings before they ever put these into into service. But I was really pleased with this. You know, I've been in the industry for 30 years and I keep hearing all these stories about um, biofuel aircraft and um, cruise ships and, and electric flights. And we've been talking about it for like, I feel like decades, Jill, but now it's starting to really take take fruition, take flight. No, no pun intended, but this is cool. Air Canada announced that they're going to be purchasing uh, 30 of these ES-30 electric hybrid aircraft under the development by a Swedish company. They're actually investing in the company itself. They're putting in $5 million equity stake in a company called Heart Aerospace. So they obviously think that this is really worthwhile, and it's kind of the what will become the future of aircraft. So they actually won't enter service until 2028, but... It's something to look forward to, and it's actually these aircraft are going to generate zero emissions, and they'll 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 fly on battery power. And so, if you want to see them, the what you put in is ES thirty electric hybrid aircraft, and you can read all about the aircraft if you love, you know, new aircraft that are coming in into into play. I I was fascinated by it, and I absolutely will. It'll it'll affect how I fly, and which aircraft 
and which airlines I fly, if they're using biofuel or if they're using electric vehicles. And I think that's going to become increasingly important. So I expect a number of airlines to actually move into these types of decisions and start to line up their their inventories and their purchase agreements moving forward. All right. That is definitely one to watch for sure. And this is, uh, we kind of touched on this, but WestJet is sharing what is considered some good news as far as getting things back after some, some chaos. And hopefully we won't have a repeat of that. Yeah, well, obviously summer was just nasty for everyone. And, you know, operations and performance reports that are they're looked at not only by the airlines themselves, but from outside companies that look in as third party flight statistics. And that's important. Um, but WestJet, uh, they had uh, departures arriving within 15 minutes for almost 77 percent of their flights. And that is really great news because it was nothing like that over the summer months of June, July, August. So things are really improving. Um, this, the week that we were talking about was September the 5th to the 11th, and it's going to be getting better and better over time. Um, they also had a really important strong completion factor. That's another type of uh, kind of factor that they look at. And 98.9% of all scheduled flights with WestJet during that same period were completed. So again, really good numbers coming out uh, and just looking better and better week over week. All right, that is good news. On that yeah. note, what deals do you have for us today? Yeah, there's um, there's some good ones out at the moment. So I wanted to just share a quick getaway to Las Vegas. And I'm noticing that people are booking these types of getaways quite close to departure so if you can go on october the 24th or 25th there is a package with air and three nights hotel for 299 taxes almost the same 238 um but a you know the lowest deal that i'm seeing at the moment now spring break has been a real a really popular date for a lot of families i just got a deal across my desk for march the 14th this is a four-star beachfront all-inclusive that includes the flight to Los Cabos, Mexico. Adults, $13.99. Taxes on that are $5.98. Kids 12 and under are $3.29. Taxes are more, $5.68. So I just wanted to share that. It is going like hotcakes. But um, if you know that you want to be away at spring break and you like Cabo, it might be one to look at. Um, another Mexican deal that I wanted to share um, is a seven-night Mexican Riviera cruise. Now, many people will know that um, there's been celebrity cruises here in during the Alaska round trip out of Vancouver. And a lot of those ships are heading down and doing round trip L.A. There's a bunch of different itineraries between November 5th and April 15th. But if you book it by September the 30th, I think this is a great deal. You can get almost, well, up to 650 U.S. dollar onboard credit. The package is less than that. The seven-night cruise, round-trip L.A. on certain sailings are from $599. Canadian, taxes of 203 So it's very interesting what they're doing in incentivizing people to get on board those ships. But many of them are doing uh, seven-night round-trip Mexican Riviera cruises because a lot of the cruises to Asia were canceled. Right. So they were repositioned there. So there's lots of space. So if you want a deal, it might be worth doing that. 
Wow. Yeah. With that credit, it seems hard to, to pass that up. Yeah, uh, I think so too. You mentioned uh, Spain with the, the requirements and what's happening there, but there's also a pretty good deal for Spain. There is um, for a long stay, and it's to a place called Calella, Spain. You can Google it by putting in C-A-L-E-L-L-A. It's about 35 minutes drive from Barcelona. So I think it's a really good hub to do a long stay getaway for the sn- for snowbirds looking for something. This is not leaving until April 16th. So, you know, n- next year. But at that time of the year, the weather's starting to get really nice there. And the crowds aren't there quite yet because, of course, kids aren't out of school. So if you're looking for a long stay vacation, Colella, Spain, airfare and 20 nights in a one bedroom with transfers, 1979 taxes. So nasty to Europe right now. 780. um, But a good deal. And I just love the location just slightly north of Barcelona. All right, some great deals and some good news when it comes to traveling. Claire, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. Let's cross our fingers that uh, things change September 30th. Just a reminder, we will bring you today's news conference live starting in about a half an hour from now. We are going to hear from the Minister of Public Safety in B.C. about the report that was put together by Amanda Butler and Doug Lepard and the focus keeping communities safe in B.C. So as soon as that gets underway, we will bring that to you live on the show. Right now, though, we are talking about something that is set to be in place on Wednesday, September 28th, which is World rabies day. We've talked about this in the past. This is when there will be a ban on the importation of dogs from countries that are deemed at high risk for rabies. And it's a pretty long list if you look at the list of countries that would stop the importation of dogs. So what kind of impact will this have in BC? We are now joined by Charmaine Brett, who is the executive director of Veterinarians Without Borders. Charmaine, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, So as far as we know, the ban on this coming in on the 28th, has anything changed or is this something that is going to go ahead as far as you know? Yes, as far as we know, this is going to go in on its World Rabies Day on the 28th. And can you remind us or just give us a bit of the background again as, as far as why there has been this decision from the Canadian Food Inspection Agency to bring in this ban? Yeah, sure. Um, So... I think the most important thing to understand about this ban is that it's really looking at canine rabies. And currently in Canada, we do not have canine rabies. We have rabies from wildlife like foxes, bats, raccoons that can spread from mammal species to predominantly dogs. But we don't have canine rabies. And that means that dogs cannot be the reservoir of rabies and spread it from dog to dog. If we had this in Canada, it would be devastating to our rural communities that suffer already from a severe lack of veterinary services. Now, according to the Global Alliance for Rabies Control, 99% of all human rabies are due to the interactions with dogs. And they said last year, 59,000 people died worldwide from these rabies, of which 40% were children. So really having this band in place is going to protect Canada from bringing in this canine rabies. Is there a way to test, though, or is there any way to ensure that dogs that are coming in from other countries, could you test and make sure they're rabies-free before they come in and then still allow them? Yeah, great question. So the surveillance that it would take to have that in place 
would be a massive undertaking looking at um, when the dogs are coming in and the time period after to be able to see if they had the rabies. And that kind of investment, um, yeah, it would be huge for Canada to undertake. And if if this is a problem, though, in other countries that have rabies and dogs that, that have this disease, I mean, we've mm-hmm. had international importation of dogs for a long time. If this was an issue, I mean, has something changed in those countries? Because wouldn't it have already arrived here if this was the source and this was a high risk of bringing it? Yeah, great question. So there was a case identified last year. Um, so mitigating that up front before it comes, I think, is what's really important. And it's really looking at those countries that are high risk and what's the solution to stop the problem? Like, what's that root cause? And the, the solution isn't bringing out one dog at a time, which is so expensive and sometimes traumatic for the dog. The root's really to double down on the countries and to help them support the problem, to support sterilization and vaccination and education and really work at the community level to ensure that you're sol- solving the problem. We're doing that right now in Ukraine, where we have vaccinated nearly 2,800 animals through our partners in the last six months in 16 shelters. And that's like under the shelling that we've been able to do that and continue the program. And that's going to help you address those root causes so that you're really fixing the problem instead of this Band-Aid solution. So do you think there should be a ban then or this should have come in sooner that Canada should have banned this importation? So at Veterinarians Without Borders, we're just, we, we stand behind CFIA. They're doing it to protect the Canadian population, and we don't want to have canine rabies there. We want to address the root causes to the problem, and we invest our energy into the communities and helping them support sterilization and vaccination. And through that work at the community level, we really know that we're going to have success, long-term success to solve the problem. Right. Okay. Well, and that makes a lot of sense. But I know some of the, the concerns have been that these are dogs in some cases that would otherwise, uh, that are that are homeless, that otherwise wouldn't have another chance. They would maybe be euthanized. And not talking about dogs that positively have rabies, but dogs simply in countries that for whatever reason don't have a home. And, and some of the concerns have been without these groups uh, adopting out these dogs, they're, they're, they're going to die or continue to have lives that are that are full of suffering yeah and there's it's so true and there's just so many dogs out there that need homes i think there was about a million dogs that were euthanized last year in the u.s because they couldn't get adopted and there's so many dogs that need homes and for organizations to be supporting countries even our neighbors and helping to bring adoption forward i think is a great solution uh, is there a way then, do you think, like you say, with the work being done in Ukraine, if that kind of work of vaccination is done in countries that are high risk for rabies, could it be eradicated like you say, like like it is in Canada yeah. where we don't have it? Yeah. Yeah. And there's some amazing success stories in uh, countries where they've really had that dog population control at the community level and the government support behind it in order to do it. And that's exactly what we're pushing forward on the ground in Ukraine and our other countries that we work so that we can really have that sustainable solution. Right. I guess one of the other concerns I had seen or, or things that was brought up was the fact that, so this is coming into place on September 28th, which is World Rabies Day. It was announced a few months ago. If it was such a pressing issue, then why wait for a specific day, World Rabies Day, to do this? Why would they have not had, uh, have had to br- bring this in sooner? That's a great question. I really can't respond to why CFA has decided to bring it on in on World Rabies Day. I think World Rabies Day is a wonderful day to bring awareness to the rabies situation. 
um, globally. So I, I, I love that World Rabies Day is a representative day that we can build that energy globally to show people that this isn't over. We need to stop it and we need to stand behind it. And do you think there is any other, is there another uh, possibility? And I know we kind of touched on this, but uh, groups that perhaps are suggesting, well, what about a quarantine program or another program where you would make sure that dogs aren't coming in and going into the general population with rabies? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different options and programs that you can do. Um, Again, like I said, they're very costly um, and it would be a big undertaking of the Canadian government to do that. Um, So I can't speak for the CFIA. I can just speak to what we do on the ground and the work that we're doing to really have that sustainable uh, model in place. And can you talk a little bit about rabies as well? The dogs that that do have it, I mean, it's, it's not something that you recover from, is it? Yeah, so the rabies is highly, highly deadly, um, it, but it's 100% preventable through rabies vaccine. So it's one of those things that you really just need to vaccinate and, and control the dog populations in order to get over it. And the 2030 goals of the Global Alliance for Rabies Control is really to ensure by 2030, there's not going to be a single death from rabies. So that's, that, that, that's the goal. And I think it's very achievable if the world gets behind it. And and that would be quite amazing. Do you think then if something like that was to happen, so eight years down the road, if if that goal was achieved, could then the borders be opened up again? That's a great question. I, again, I, I don't feel that I can answer for the CSIA, but I think that if rabies is getting under control, then of course there could be um, ways to look at things. I know in the U.S. they've amended a few things in the past year from their ban that they put in two years ago. So I think that the more progress it's seen, the more countries that are getting things under control will definitely allow things to come back on the table to some degree. Right. So is Canada following other countries then when it comes to bringing in this ban? You know, I don't have an answer to that. I'm not sure what what motivated CFIA to bring in this ban, if it was looking at other countries to do so. But I do know that other countries have this ban in place. All right. Charmaine, we will leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us and bringing us up to date on the efforts of your group and what's happening with this. Thank you so much, Jill. Thanks for having us.